Shall we pray? Father, in this uh, time that we have together, I ask that your spirit open our hearts, that we come before you now honestly as we are, and that we allow you to reach in and change us to address those deep and inner needs that we have and we come before you with open hearts. We ask it in your name. Amen. Well, good evening. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Barry. It's good to be here. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. And we've been doing a, um, a series on the attributes or aspects of God. Um, this is a slightly large subject. And um, in theory, of course, we would never finish it. We've done uh, a gracious God, a loving God. Last week we did a humble God. This week we want to do um, something called a redeeming God. A redeeming God. Uh, be honest with me now. Um, I'll ask you this simple question. Hands up if you think that you are pricelessly valuable. That's the way you think about yourself. Uh, hands up. None of this business. This is, this is not good. If you think the answer to that is yes. Okay. I'm not giving you any clues. Hands up if you feel worthy before God. I thought I might get that reaction. I didn't think it would be that unanimous. In that case, why did God pay such a high price for you? Was he conned? Was he wrong? Was he guilty of some worthiness bubble which burst and he got landed with all the debt? Because the answer to that question is yes, every hand should have been in the air. But thank you for your honesty, because otherwise it wouldn't have worked as a visual aid at all. It was spectacularly successful from a speaker's point of view. But there's an interesting and sobering reminder of how we actually feel when we ask that question. And I know why you kept your hands down. There were some adverts run years ago. Do you remember the Booper adverts? Yeah, this is about, this is at least 12, 13 years ago. They used to, and what they say, they said, you are amazing. They used to say, you are amazing. Rattle off all these stats about you. Say, you are amazing. We want to keep you that way and want to charge you for it. Um, and the L'Oreal adverts, they've had virtually every celebrity say that you are worth it. Unbelievable number of people have been paid to say that to you. Went to a wedding yesterday, and um, many of you, or some of you would have gone to it. Um, Mark and Anna were, were married in uh, Gerard's Cross. First time I've been allowed in Gerard's Cross, because I had my suit on. Um, and they sang this song uh, part, as part of the worship here. I, I have a something of an uneasy relationship with, with worship songs. Not because I don't like them, but 
sometimes for me the, the words don't quite match what I got brought up singing, which is 250 years old, just in terms of the content. But this one definitely does. There's a song called In Christ Alone, which you know, Stuart Townend. And this is the third verse. It says this. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. I am bought, I'm paid for. I've been redeemed by God. And redemption, the trouble is with it, it's a really old fashioned word, isn't it? You used to, I used to sing out of redemption hymnal. It's kind of a red book they used to have in church. And it just meant ladies with hats who sang in choirs. That's what the word that was the baggage that went with the word redemption. And the only other example I can think of is my mum used to tell me about the old pawn shops. Now, before you make up your own jokes, that's P-A-W-N, okay? And you used to take your possessions there and exchange them for money, and they'd give you a ticket, and you'd come back, and if you have got the money and money enough to go and buy it back, you would redeem it. And you'd free it and you'd take it back to yourself. And if you didn't, they'd sell it and make more money than they gave to you. And that's how they made their business. And I think they're alive and well, these shops, aren't they? I think that's what cash converters are all about, isn't it? It's a sure sign there's a lot of debt about because that's why people have to do it. Redemption means something very specific in the Bible. And I suspect the word has changed uh, in English, since the first translations used that word. It signifies something very, very straightforward. It's all about the buying back by paying a ransom of a slave. That's what the word means. It's lutron in Greek, meaning ransom. 1 Corinthians 6.20, 1 Corinthians 7.22 say, You are bought at a price. You are redeemed. Now, how does that idea play in your head? How does that picture that you are bought with the precious blood of Christ play in your mind? What are the other things that have a monopoly over your thought life when you're going through the week about what to do, what to wear, uh, how to be good enough for God, how to be good enough for other people, how to do this, how to do that, where to go? Do you ever consider that you're bought at a price, and as a consequence, you have been released into a life of freedom. Into a life of freedom. Let's just reprise what um, Katie read to us. Hebrews 10, verse 10 says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14 said, For, what, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And then in 18 he says, Where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Why didn't every hand go up? Because 
we find it so hard to appropriate that truth to us. And we live enslaved to voices that say, you really are not good enough. You really are not freed. You really are not as good as you ought to be. Here's a mask for you to wear so you can pretend otherwise. Wear it. Wear it at all times, except when you're alone. And that is not why Jesus died, to have to live like that. To have to live under that lie. Redemption means being introduced to a new life of freedom. And it's odd because a lot of people see you entering faith, the life of religious devotion, as giving up freedom, of buying into a way that is now constrained, a whole load of new regulations and ways of doing things. And so far from being redeemed by God, we're actually captured and re-enslaved by him. Or maybe by the church, I don't know. There's a richness to this idea of redemption that we don't live in enough. And it's fabulous, I think, when you get it. When, you, when the penny drops, you, that's when you become a new person. When you live in true redemption. As an aspect of God, which is what this series is really about, we see that God does it all the time. This is how God is. He redeems all the, all the time. He redeems humankind from destruction in the flood story. He redeems the people of Israel from Egypt. He redeems them from Babylon. He redeems them from their enemies. And ultimately, he redeems the whole human race through the work of Christ on the cross. Redemption is central to the character and nature of God. It's what he does. But interestingly, all the way through the Bible, right the way through to Hebrews, which is near the end, these two ideas of redemption and sacrifice or ransom, a price, are fused together. You see there, the writer to the Hebrews talks about the sheep and the goats and the rams and all the stuff that was slaughtered to deal with sin and then says, more or less, well, it never really worked. They never really took away sin. And you get these amazing words of Christ here where he says, here I am, I have come to do your will, O Lord. Here I am, I have come to do your will twice. Because that is why Jesus came, was to redeem the human race. And that was a very costly price. We can never actually anywhere near understand how that works. It's very, very hard to understand how redemption, how atonement works. God couldn't simply wipe out man's sin as if it didn't matter. Although there are parables where it looks as if that's true. Do you remember the, um, the parable of the unmerciful servant? where one man is forgiven several hundred lifetimes of debt and the other one is not forgiven very much at all. Well, there, the king wipes away the debt. In the story of the prodigal son, when the son comes back, he's just received back, isn't he? There's no penalty for sin, although there is a, 
a fatted calf who pays the price, I seem to recall. But outside of those pictures, it would seem that the reality is that there is always a price for sin. And maybe the reason is this, that sin is an act of freedom, it's an act of free choice. And God doesn't restore our true freedom if he just wipes it away. God instead has chosen a much more costly, a slower work of, of repair. In fact, of complete recreation. Where you and I and everyone else are restored to membership of a new race of people. We're made new creations. It's not just wipe it out and start again. Let's just get the board rubber out and, or a clean sheet of paper. It's not just that. It's let's make you new so that this isn't the future again. And God's redemption is all about that new beginning. I don't know how that works. I inwardly chuckle at those people who claim that they do. Um, and, and, and Christianity, particularly in the West, as aside from the, the, you know, the sort of Orthodox Church, there are long, long debates over how this works. Um, the early church fathers, um, who were Orthodox actually, um, thought that Christ's death paid a ransom to the devil, that the devil owned us all, or had us ensnared and enslaved, and Christ paid the price and freed us. And then later thinkers thought this was rather stupid because the devil doesn't own anybody and doesn't deserve that kind of honor. So they developed this idea of substitution where this great debt of honor that we owe God is paid by Christ on our behalf. And then later on it turns away from being a debt of honor to being a punishment. So people like John Calvin wrote this is, they call it penal substitution where Christ takes our punishment instead of us. And all of those pictures are in the Bible. They're all there. They're all biblical, if you like. But the only safe ground is the recognition that we need it, that we all exist in need of this redemption. And yet, what we read earlier on and what we read constantly through the, through the Bible is that it has been done. It is a finished work. What are we redeemed from? Let me show you something. It's a miracle I can find these. I'm well known for not being able to find these, ever. I lose these at least, at least once a day, don't I? At least once a day. Um, I always found, always redeemed. What does that cluster of bits of metal tell you? Pardon? I've got lots of doors to open. Actually, this is, well, they do open doors. They also shut doors, of course. Does that symbolize anything to you? What does it tell you about life? Anything at all? You're a slave to the keys. Well, um, I'm a slave to the keys. I suppose I can't get by without them. Yeah, I guess I am. Why? The world seeks security. Okay, I suppose it does. Why does it need security? Because it's afraid it's going to be robbed. 
That cluster of keys there, and you've got one in your pocket or your handbag or your coat or something similar, haven't you? Is a picture of the world's condition. The world governs itself on the assumption of sin. It is not an occasional lapse. It is the assumption on which the world is designed. Um, I, I have a car. I cannot trust anyone not to steal it. So I have that. I have a house. I cannot trust any people not to rob it. So I have those three to get in, front and back. Um, even in the church here, half of these are the church. Um, you know, I can't even trust my fellow curate not to take my stapler which he covets in direct contravention of Exodus 21, 20, verse 17. That tells you about us. Not necessarily you guys, but that tells you about us. Even in an educated, liberal, well-provided-for, relatively rich um, philosophically advanced uh, ex-Christian country, you would not get very far unless you had a, a chunk of those. Unfortunately. Because that is what we are like. Why do you have a driving license in your wallet, assuming you do? It's because no one will trust you just to say you can drive a car. Because you'd probably lie. Or that's the assumption. Why do you sign everything? Why do you have a PIN number? Why do you need money at all? The world is designed around sin. Everything is designed so that you have to prove who you are so that you're not taking somebody else's thing, whatever it is. And the assumption is that you will if you could. We cannot trust each other. We need protection from another. This is the great thing about sin. It's not just the bad thought that you occasionally have about that person you don't like. And it's not the extra biscuit out of the tin. It's just to trivialize it. It is the condition in which the world exists and turns. If you say money makes the world go round, why do you need money? Because people have to prove that they have the right to exchange something to have something else. If they didn't, they would lie. And they'd take it. The Jews understood that this condition separated us from God. It was inherent in the way they, designed, the way they built and designed the temple. And they'd only allow one person, once a year, to go and meet with God. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest could go in. However, what the book of Hebrews says that it is done, what Jesus said on the cross is, it is done. We are free from the power of that, that commodity, that thing called sin. It doesn't control us. It doesn't trump our lives anymore. We are no longer its slave and we've been redeemed. Is it still present? Does it still exist? Yes, it does. But as we live in that presence and relationship with God, he begins to affect us. And it has less and less of a hold on our lives. The, 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 book, or the, the passage that we read said that we are being made 
perfect. He is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. So past tense, made perfect, present and ongoing tense, whatever that's called, being made holy. So we're not there yet, but we're being made holy all the time. And that is redemption and salvation and atonement and sanctification and all these old-fashioned words that you only find in my red hymn book. But they're powerful. But there's another sort of freedom that I just want to finish with, and it's this. Let me read you something. I want you to ask, I want to ask you, rather, is this you? I'm going to read this passage out. And it's from a, a book by um, a, a Catholic abbot who wrote a book called Finding Sanctuary. His name is Christopher Jameson. And he says this. He's talking about freedom. Freedom of choice is a core value of modern life. Somebody might express it as follows. I don't want to be told what to do. I want to be free to be me. I express that freedom by exercising my right to choose my clothes, my job, my sexual activity, and everything else. Yet, many people, perhaps most people, exist in a state where their supposed free choices are actually driven by an inner obedience, or put slavery, if you like, to a hidden agenda. Take clothes, for example. People today are convinced that they choose their own clothes from endless possibilities, from jeans to smart suits. Yet their choices are usually responses to other people's ideas about what they should wear. The fashion houses decide the season's look, the high street stores manufacture that look, and the marketeers of fashion icons and advertisements influence to buy that look. Almost nobody dresses so independently that they can claim to be really free in their choices. When people use the language of freedom but live in thrall, in slavery, to hidden rules, they place themselves in a dangerous position. There's nothing wrong with obeying good rules and nothing wrong with exercising free choice. The danger exists in claiming to be doing the one while actually doing the other. When we live according to rules but break them, we call it hypocrisy. When we live according to freedom but actually live under unstated rules, we don't have a name for it. Is that you? Do you live in subjection to unstated rules which enslave you when you have been bought at a price? Do you live under the rule of needing to prove your worthiness to others? Do you have a bad sense of self-worth? Are you enslaved by materialism and retail therapy, which wears off quicker each time? Do you constantly want to get to the next level in whatever you're doing? Are you a slave to that rule? The next level of anything. The next biggest house, the next biggest car, the next best job. Are you enslaved by temper or contempt for others, which prevents you being the generous person you want to be? Are you, 
a slave to the voice that says, you're not good enough at this Christian business. You don't pray enough, you don't read your Bible enough, you don't give enough money, you don't spend enough time here. They were a slave to that. Maybe you're a slave to your own, your own body, its fatigues and laziness and urges towards spiritual junk food and telly which steals all your time. Christ's redemption frees our will to make our decisions according to what God is asking us to do. We're offered a way of life that is connected to free choice, but redeemed from the tyranny of what everyone else thinks. We don't need to belong to the right tribe of smartphone owners. You can buy the one you want. Or needing to be seen to wearing the correct brand of jeans, or living in the right postcode, or whatever. We're no more compelled to make those choices than we are compelled to sin. We're free from both. I want to offer you an opportunity now, um, maybe as we worship again, just to come to the front, and if you want to be prayed for, you can. And that thing in your life that has re-enslaved you, and it doesn't need to be a sin. It just needs to be the thing that determines the way you think and the way, therefore, that you act. And it may not be wrong. It's just the agenda you are forced to work to. Wouldn't it be great if we could just lay it down here and then free it before we move into communion? You're not worthy, but you are worth it. That's how God sees you. You don't need to be worthy. You're worth it. And you were worth him coming to bear everything, the whole sin of the world for you. You're priceless. You may be a little tarnished, like me. Maybe a little bit like a treasure that's been buried under the ground. You know how it comes out, they find this old Anglo-Saxon stuff, and it looks terrible. And then they restore it, and it looks incredible. That is you. Brought to the surface, polished and renewed. Let me close with this. This is from Isaiah 57. For this is what the high and exalted one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy... I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. God wants to live with us. So as we worship, come to the front. Let us pray with you or just simply lay that burden down and allow Christ's redemption to set you free again to be the person God wants you to be.